Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt, and I'm here with Stuart uh, Bodecker and Athena Pappas. It is, we're at Bodecker Cellars in Portland. It is August 16th, 2017. And we're going to start you guys off by asking, why wine? Well, that's the hardest question of all, really. So Stuart's going to take it. Oh, great. <laughs> Um, why wine? Why wine? Because beer is too easy. Um, no, really, it's, it's, now I'm blanking where I was going to go with that. So, food, wine, beverages, everything's great, um, but wine lets you take something from this little corner of some hillside where you live and turn it into this fabulously complex, maddening project, marks time in your life, and you end up with something in a bottle that you can take out and show the rest of the world. It's the coolest thing ever. Um, I mean, for, for us, we grew up in the Northwest. Athena's actually from Portland, one of the rare Oregon winemakers from Oregon. Um, and I'm from Seattle. and. We were sort of wine geeks before we started making wine. Um, and when we were dating, we bonded over food and wine. We met wine tasting. So that we did have that kind of foundation. And I'm taking it away from you, aren't no, I? You're good. I always do this to the poor guy. But like just. When you ask the question, why wine, I, I was like, I don't know why we started it. We just like, we loved food, we loved wine, we just thought it would be fun and interesting and oh, there was this winemaker lifestyle, you know? <laughs> you go to France three to four months out of the year and you just hang out. <laughs> um, so it just sounded wonderful and it's still wonderful. We haven't quite experienced that, but I know we will eventually get to the point where we can just like hang out three to four months in France <laughs> or anywhere. Um, but it's worth all the work because it's it's so interesting. It's the end product is just beautiful. It's just this incredibly layered, beautiful thing. Whether you want to call it art or a craft, it's it's or a life or whatever. It's just. So it gives us goosebumps, both of us, really. What were you doing before wine? I'll answer that one because Stu's still doing it. Um, <laughs> I was working um, <clears throat> as a usability engineer, or human factors engineer, which I loved. I mean, I loved. I got to watch people use things, right, in labs or go to their homes and offices. and. It was part of psychology, right? And I'd write up reports, you know, and say, hey, this is how people, this is how people act. This is what they do. Let's build products for them. So that was fun. But it was working in a cubicle. That wasn't. 
Yeah, and, I, and I'm, uh, my background, I was an engineer for a large multinational company to the west of here. Um, great job, super challenging, really interesting. You know, used all of my physics background every day. Um, but again, you were working for a big company with a lot of people and you were a little cog in a little machine. Um, and just really far removed from the end product. Um, one of the things that's, one of the best things about the winery is you, you own it end to end and you see it to the point where you're out actually selling it to people. Um, or talking to end users, talking to consumers, talking to chefs. Um, and that part is just awesome, I love that. Um, you know, you're also out on your own, you are responsible for the whole thing. So um, the business is just the two of us, it's always just been the two of us. And so every great decision is ours, every dumb decision is ours. Um, so we're always out of our comfort zone and that's a really positive thing to be an yeah. adult and to be so a little bit afraid and nervous and learning because I know when I was working, when I left and became full-time here, I was so bored. I was learning, yeah, you know, from my industry a little bit, um, but I wasn't experiencing like kids do, you know, when kids go to school and they just, everything is new and wondrous. It's still like that in the wine industry. We're still learning so much, and I'm learning so much. And it sounds like what you were doing before would feed really well into your business now, knowing people and knowing what they want. So tell me about that kind of transition and process. Well, in a couple of ways it worked. It worked when, so when we started, Stuart had worked in other wineries and I hadn't. And so um, a lot of what I learned was, you know, having this one person say, this is how it should be done. And I had to, take a few steps back and just kind of like, well, yeah, when you're 6'1", this is how things are done. <laughs> when you move this much and you have this much strength, this is how things are done. So let's take a look at how you're short. <laughs> things. So that was the first thing, um, and that helped us design this winery around, you know, like for the tall and the short and the different physical attributes, mm -hmm. different tools. I learned how to use tools differently. Um, and when I, and now with like having a crew like at Harvest, um, it's enabled me to, rather than say, okay, I hired you to do this and you're going to do this no matter what they've done, and it's like, okay, let's see how everybody works, what their strengths are, and then let's put them in the right areas. Um, you know, then I can't remember because there's just so many aspects. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when you started getting interested in wine, and of course you said you were wine, you were, yeah. you were fans of wine yeah. as a consumer. What made you decide to take the leap and start your own label and and, take, and start this place? We were bored with <laughs> our lives. We needed a change. And we were stupid. We thought it was going to be a lot easier. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be quite honest. Um, and it, and it was a different time too. So this was back. So this was our first vintage was 2003, um, and we made 400 cases that first year at the Carlton Winemaker Studio. 
And the plan was we were always going to stay, we were going to be small, right? We were going to be like, like big for us back then. It's like maybe we'll make 2,000 cases. Um, well, I, but, but you know, like that's what the accountants said all we needed to do too. It was a different world back then. Yeah. Oregon Pinot was almost selling itself. And, and you know, it was, it was in the boom year, so it was the yeah. expensive wine made sense for everybody. Everybody could sell all of it. Um, yeah. And then when the recession hit, things changed. We changed the business plan a little bit. We're bigger now so that we can, you know, afford the economies of scale. And, and one of the other reasons why we got bigger, too, is so we could have this place to ourselves. Um, the studio is a great place to make 400 cases. It's not a great place to make a couple thousand, 3,000 cases. Um, well, we started at an incubator place, yeah. and then those were our college days, and then we, <laughs> we got our own house. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we learned a lot, but we learned more on our own, and we learned how to be really creative. Like when we started out, we had two Pinot Noirs, and now we're, we've got nine, or over nine, actually. Um, so why, why wine also? I mean, and why stay in it? Because we can do, there's more that I want to do. I want to make a hundred different bottlings of Pinot Noir because it's all, you know, everything's so nuanced. But then you have the business part and you can't sell a hundred. Or maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out. What was your vision for the place when you opened it? Or when you started your label? What was your vision? Uh, that's an interesting question. So, yeah, so this, this actually leads to some of the stuff about why we make 3,000 pinots. <laughs> we, were, we were originally going to do like one, we were going to do one great Willamette Valley bottling. Um, and maybe have a second label, something like that. When we, the first year when we put, went to go put the blends together, you know, it was 20 whole barrels. Um, and we tasted, started blending trials, and within like half a day, we were basically both going, nope, you're wrong. That is not the great Pinot we're gonna make. Nope, you're wrong. That's, and it, it reminded us that, so we, how long had we been together by that? We've been together like seven or eight years? Yeah, probably. Something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and whenever we'd gone to, big wine tastings, gone out for weekends wherever wherever we traveled. The wines that we loved were never the same. They were always different wines. Um, and that's stayed that way. And so in the middle of like, like literally month, like not that many months before we were supposed to bottle this stuff, we, we said, no, we're not gonna make one, we're gonna make two. So now we each, we each do our own winemaker's selection out of the cellar, and then we bottled the million other special little things which just like, oh my god, this wine is so good, it's gonna get bottled by itself. But um, but it, it lets us stay true to what we started doing this for, was I wanna make something that is awesome and that I think is awesome. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not going out and doing a market research study and saying we need to hit this flavor profile in order to hit these guys. It's the, this is really what I think is great Oregon Pinot. Um, yeah, so we taste all of our barrels when we're getting ready to do our blending. We taste the barrels blind, um, and that's like 300 barrels, which we could taste 
which we thought 20 at a time was difficult. Now we can do 60 at a time. <laughs> we are professionals. But we do, we do taste the wine because we want to go with, you know, what we like, not because this barrel is the most expensive barrel, so obviously it goes into mine. Yeah. <laughs> so that does keep, that has kept us pretty darn honest. Yeah, and it's, the same, and it's the same process we use when we pick out the little bottlings for the vineyard designate bottlings. Those, are, the, those barrels are basically selected before we know what they are, when we've got them all blind ID'd. So that if, you know, if every year we want to bottle from Vineyard X, um, if it's not great that year, it doesn't get bottled by itself. So, you know, which, again, works great when you're small, um, which is why all those bottlings are pretty dinky. It, that would not work so great on the national market probably, but we don't have to worry about that part that much. So what is the difference in your styles and what is that you each prefer? I prefer a more black-fruited, little richer, um, more earth, more primal, more spice. Um, and then Stu prefers <laughs> just going to let you answer for it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I like lighter style, more more aromatic driven, less tannin structure driven. So brighter fruit, more of the kind of the rainier cherry current end of the flavor spectrum. Um, more forest floor notes on the finish, um, but really focused around just like this creamy texture, some bright fruit, but really on the aromatics and the finish. Um, more quiet. It's interesting though, through the years, people will tell us what they taste, right? When, when they're tasting. They don't necessarily taste what we're tasting, you know? I mean, generally they get the more aromatics from the steward, but some will say that, well, his has got more tannin, mine have more tannin, but we, but like, for our definition of what we like, that's those are yeah. what separates. Sometimes mine's more Burgundian, sometimes Stuart's more Burgundian. <laughs> like, we're Oregonian. <laughs> um, it's fun. Why did you decide to have the winery here in Portland rather than in the valley or out outside in the? Honestly, it comes down to where we felt, as they say these days, our truth is right. Like we. Portland is a small city, but it's still a very different feel than being in the country. Um, and we had our house here, and it just felt right. Um, you can make wine in a barn, right? Many people do. So it's not necessarily the location, as long as you are close to the vineyards. If, like for us, we are involved with vineyards, every step. Um, so as long as we had the ability to be at a vineyard within 45 minutes to an hour, that was almost the same way as being out in Carlton. Yeah. But and, and we're here every day. Yeah. So you know having the having the five mile commute to the winery is awesome. Yes, because um, I would forget things and I would have to drive. <laughs> <laughs> you know an hour to go do a half hour's work sometimes and then come back. Um, so I'm so happy. And 
what what I do in the wineries, I, I run the cellar and Stu rents the vineyards, and I've got all my suppliers in this neighborhood. And I can go get sushi and all kinds of food. <laughs> you know, I can just walk anywhere. So it's, you know, in the city, it's a city. Yeah, you and have it, everything. And it's a, it's a personality thing, too, because one of the great things about being in the city is there's just the energy of being here. And it's different than the quiet, beautiful, peaceful, flowing hills out in the valley, but that's not us. This is us. Um, and rather than drive back and forth an hour and a half every day, we're just here. Um, and yeah, it is great to get done with punch downs at 10 o'clock at night and have some place you can go eat. That is pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> because when we were out there, there were not as many great restaurants as there are now. <laughs> that we can go home and come back. Go home and have a beer and come back. And <laughs> well, actually, we have a brewery two doors down, so go have a beer, come back to work. Wait, we don't do that. No. Clearly. No. Yeah, <laughs> never do that, never, never. So, you, so you're in charge of the vineyards. So how do you manage? How do you sort of manage vineyards from afar? How, do you, how often are you there, and how do you work out your relationships? It depends, it depends on the time. So, so the vineyards that we work with, we've worked with for 10 years or longer. Um, I know the vineyard managers. I know the crew. I know the companies they hire um, to manage to run the show. They know me. We've all worked together long enough, so we know what's going on. Um, to some extent, I rely on their eyes and ears a little bit too, but I'm out every place every couple of weeks. Um, and at harvest. And at harvest, I'm out there like I'm out there every day. I mean, that's so. So at the it's, it's it, at the beginning of harvest when we're making picking decisions and everything else. Athena's here doing everything else, and I'm basically out there driving around in a circle all day. Um, and some of the growers, growers will call me and say, hey, Stuart said we might not pick for a couple of days. You might want to talk to him. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy. Um, just because I know, I know the people, I know the sites, um, I can go out and I can do a pretty thorough walkthrough on my own, and I can just get on the phone and talk to the vineyard managers and set everything up. How did you go about choosing the vineyards you source from, and what, what makes them unique? Uh, that's a good question. So we've, we've essentially expanded and contracted the number of it. At one point we had up to, I think it was 11 or 12 different sources for Pinot. Now we're down to six. Um, some of it's, it's people who have great vineyards like Dick Shea, right? Everyone knows Shea. Um, the vineyard's great. His farming is great. His farming crew is always awesome. There's other vineyards that are just as awesome, like Cherry Grove, which is a tiny little vineyard outside of Gaston. We met them the first year that they were producing fruit. We got, I think it was like one and a half acres that first year, and now we've got about half the vineyard. Um, some of it's the, you know, we've grown within the sites that as other people give up blocks, we're like, hey, I see that, I see that block's available. Can I have that too? Then um, it's, it's people that, share the same mindset about farming, right? It's, it's, they may not, they may not be certified organic, but they damn well farm organic. Um, basically everybody's live certified at this point. Um, yeah. Everybody's all about quality in the vineyard and they know what that means and it agrees with what we think it means. Um, 
and they're honest with us. Yeah, and they're honest with us, and we like working together. And during harvest, when they call me five times to ask when we're going to pick, they know that I'm going to tell them no the first five times. Um, and everybody's open to trying new things to make things better. Um, just about every vineyard, we do some little experiment in somewhere where we do a split and a block on something with canopy management or something with timing of fruit thinning, differentially picking every other row and coming back a week later and differentially picking the other rows. Um, because that's part of what keeps making Pinot get better, um, which is one of the, the really cool things about the Willamette Valley is everybody does that and everybody tells everybody what they do and you get to taste the results. Um, that is that's is one cool thing that has not changed as, as the industry has gotten bigger, older, more people coming in from the outside. People come in from the outside and they start to play that game right away. They don't like come in and like, yeah, we're the coolest, we're the coolest kids in school. We'll, we'll see you later. Um, everybody comes in and they're, they're instantly part of the community. So you talk about, um, on, I think on the website, you talk about uh, hands-on grape selection, minimal intervention techniques, and, yep. lo and local vineyard yeast. It's a lot of effort to go through. So I'm curious yeah. how you came, up, came to this sort of uh, process and then why. So, so some of this, so um, in the years before we started doing this, I worked with a lot of people who did um, uninoculated ferments, got to see their experiments. We did some on our own when we first started too of inoculated, uninoculated. Um, it is, anymore it's not, I mean, now it's just, it's what we do, so it's not, it doesn't seem difficult or easy, it's just, it is what it is. What it is. Um, you get so much more subtle nuances in the aromatics of the wine. Um, freaks our interns out every year when they show up. <laughs> well, it actually, it, it goes two ways. Some of, them, some of them come to work for us because they want to work someplace that doesn't inoculate because they've worked at a bunch of big places. Others have never worked any place where they've done anything other than just pitch a bag of yeast in, and it just freaks them out. They're like, well, aren't you going to do something? It smells a little funny. I'm like, no, that's fine. That's day one. It'll be fine. By tomorrow, you'll see. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. Um, that's, that's almost part of, well, for me, it is part of what makes the winemaking so damn difficult and so damn interesting. Right? It is hard. We walk by through the by those fermenters like, okay, this smells like this, it's fine. Oh, this is a little bit can you guys smell this? Okay, this is what we're gonna do, you know, and and then it's fascinating when we have like people that don't know the smells that'll come in and maybe help us do punch downs and they'll just be like, oh this smells like this I'm like, yeah goodness, you come back. <laughs> so it's, it's a way for us to get to know the people that we're working with, too, yeah. around us. So when you're coming into the industry, how did you go about learning sort of winemaking 101? I worked for free for a lot of harvests. Um, the first year, Back, so 96 was my first year as a seller. And I, you know, I'd like brewed beer and other, you know, like I kind of understood basic fermentation stuff, but um, winemaking is a different deal, especially at like a, you know, ton and a half, three ton fermenter scale. Um, and so I took a couple weeks of vacation and I was going to show up work for a couple weeks and that was going to be like great, my winemaking adventure. Um, 
but it was like from the, from like the first day, it's like you walk in and it is just like the greatest thing ever. Um, there is nothing like the smell of walking into a winery mid harvest and just getting assaulted by that wave of stuff coming over you. So at the end of the two weeks, I figured I went back to work for like a day. I figured out how to rework my schedule. So I'd go into the winery. I'd work in the winery from like nine in the morning. I'd drive to Newburgh from Portland, work in the winery from nine until about one in the afternoon. Then I'd go to work and work until about midnight and come home. So I could extend it and actually go through the rest of the go through the rest of the year. Um, and then every year after that, I'd take I'd like lump not all, but at least most of my vacation together. Go work harvest. Um, my first sabbatical from work, I took off. I did. I spent it all in the winery. Um, but that's how you learn to make Pinot. That's how you learn to make Pinot. It's, it's how you learn the farming bit in Oregon. It's how you learn the winemaking thing in Oregon. You can make great Pinot if you go to school and show up and you won't screw up the wine. The wine will be okay. It'll, I mean, it'll be good, but it won't be special. That we, you know, you'll miss that. You'll miss that soil out of the center of it. Um, and that's what you got to learn hands on. That said, though, because we were dating at the time, <laughs> and, or maybe a little more than dating, because where I would read novels at night, Stuart would read wine books, wine chemistry, everything. I mean, you were yeah, that's true. just like, yeah. gobbling up all that knowledge. Because there is a technical piece you got to know too. Right, right. Yeah. And, and we took we took some classes at Schmeckata. A, a couple of classes at Davis, um, and then some real classes at, after we actually started. No, before and after. So, to help. But really, I know it was. But it was all in the but, but Yeah, it was funny because and, and Athena had come out for like a day or two, a couple of times yeah. to work in the winery before we started our, our first year. So her. Our first vintage in 03 was her first vintage of like really doing it all the way through, um, and we've got some we've got some great pictures of her like looking like she's just like falling asleep on her feet. I you know but that first year we made so nine hard. tons. You know, was, <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't learn a damn thing in my classes because we were taking chemistry, so I didn't know. Um, I didn't know what a valve was, how to tell the valve was open or closed, but it's. People calling gaskets and O-rings, they're calling different words, the same things. I mean, seriously. <laughs> and then, you know, we were new and stressed out, so I gave them a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we doing this? Why are we just leaving? We don't care. Why are we working so late? But then, I mean, and then I ended up loving it. Who knew? I used to wear heels all the time, and now I wear blundstones all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you caught the bug, though. Yeah, I found. I found for me. I found something that makes me excited about being middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just like it clicked. Not the administration part. Not even really being a boss part walking through and smelling. I can identify what's going on in the barrels, some of the smells. I hear my machines breaking. <laughs> um, so when I say lane making essential, it's all the senses, you know? It's my muscles ache and it used to feel good. And 
along with the colors and the smells. So yeah. So one thing we're always curious about when we talk to folks in the industry who have liberal arts background, yeah. and so uh, Stuart, you went to Puget Sound, and Athena yeah. went to Lewis and Clark, sort of curious how your liberal arts education, since we're a liberal arts school ourselves, how it sort of set you up for working in the wine industry. Uh, I think you learn that you can do a lot of different things. Um, it's funny, because I've worked with a lot of people who went to engineering schools. Um, they know how to be engineers. They can't write a sentence to save their lives. <laughs> They, you know, they're, they're very good at a very narrow thing. And what someplace like like Winfield does is it teaches you. It, they very early do not let you pigeonhole yourself. Yeah. Um, and it does teach you that you can. I mean, I my my undergraduate degree from Puget Sound. I was a physics major. I had a minor in math and poli sci. You know, does that make any sense? No. Um, but it was fun, and I learned a lot of things, and it kept me from from pigeonholing my brain into I can only do this thing over here. Because um, especially running a small winery with just the two of us, we do, we do everything. Um, so you've got to be able to figure out the boring bureaucracy part. You've got to figure out how to sell things. You've got to figure out how to do contracts and source things and rent things and um, deal with things that break in the middle of the night. And yeah. And never have to doubt yourself. I mean, I remember hearing you know, liberal arts college teaches you how to think, how to question. I, I graduated realizing that, and I, I just figure I can figure anything out. And that is what my education taught me, which is, you know, I learned math once I got into the winery, <laughs> you know, because I had to. Um, so it taught me how to make be a little patient, or maybe that was the mass, but um, in the age, liberal arts is, is fundamental. I don't know. Physics is pretty awesome, too, though, I have to say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I noticed that you also have uh, a label with your name on it. Tell us a little about that. So when we started, we we knew that like nothing, whatever you attempt is never 100%. You know, it can be really close, right? So we knew that we would have barrels that wouldn't make the cut. And we wanted to make sure that that was, that they were kept separate. And what, what that turned out to is, since we have the Stuart and the Athena because we had no creativity or kids or pets, so we just said, this is yours and this is my cuvee. Um, and mine, you know, how we describe, like, mine's black-fruited, Stu's is red-fruited. And we don't pitch yeast, so we don't have a way to, to make those wines always taste that way. Some years we have, like, the flavors of give us blue fruit or purple, I mean, because that, I, t I taste in colors, so, you know, something that's not distinctly Stuart or Thinner, it'll go into the Pappas Pinot Noir. That was where we started. Um, the label, the label is fun because we wanted it to be, okay, this is, this is every day, um, and 
people were, you know, I'm five feet tall, and, and it took me a while to wear my blundstones everywhere, so I would go out to tastings and wear skirts and stuff. I am now. Um, but we actually had somebody call me window dressing to say, ah, he doesn't want to work in your window dressing. And I can't stop telling that story. Because <laughs> this, by the way, was somebody who was trying to sell us something. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what makes it even better. But that was a, a big deal back then. And so the label has, you know, the, the women hold, holding up the grapes. And that was Stuart's idea, actually, just kind of showing a little bit more of the my involvement, I guess. So that's been fun. And, and then we, we made Pinot Blanc one year, and we weren't sure what we were going to how that fit in the Bodecker brand. So we said, hey, let's make the Papas Wine Company now. More fun. So we did Pinot Blanc under that. And then we did Pinot Gris under that. And then we did a serious Pinot Gris under Bodecker. <laughs> and a serious Pinot Blanc under Bodecker. So now we've got the fun and the, our heart and soul. So on that note, as you brought it, since you brought it up, what yeah. is it like being a woman in the wine industry? So. I think it's more being a woman, what I, the frustrations I experience, I think are more of just being a woman in business, okay? Um, I'm going to tell the story of sitting around with some very educated people, um, customers, who were actually, it was like a couple months ago even, you know, and like, Oh, Stuart, I can't believe what you do with your job, and then you come here, and, and which is true, I can't believe you do this either. But you know, Stuart says, well, yeah, but actually Athena runs blah, blah, blah. And he says, yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure Athena does a lot, but Stuart, I can't believe. And I am, <laughs> that's hard, that's hard. And I get that, just again, at full the business stuff. I don't know that anybody's ever challenged me as a winemaker to say, you can't make wine. But they might say, oh, honey, you're so cute. You, you're involved. You do the marketing, right? Um, but then that can be kind of fun. Like sometimes I'll have trucks come by delivering things. And they're like, oh, it's you? I'm like, yeah. I get on the forklift. I offload them. And they're like, oh, wow, that was really fast. I'm like, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> gotta have fun with it. Because it is the world. Has it changed? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, what about on the, like, out on the market side of things? On the market. Well, so the problem is, is like, when we started, I had absolutely no confidence. And I do have more confidence now. And I think that probably helps me a little bit. Because I can now say, without getting offended or feeling like I really don't know, I can have real conversations with people and say, yeah. Seriously, I was in Mississippi, what, like three months ago, and nobody challenged the fact that I was the winemaker. Not the, yeah. uh, because we do share. Yikes. Um, <laughs> no. Um, no. I don't really know if it's distinctly the wine business. There's just people that 
have their views everywhere. So what's in the future for Bodecker Sellers and for the Papas label as well? Such a good question. So we're going to make Gamay for the first time this year. Cool. Nice. So that'll be, that'll be fun. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I realized few years after we started is that, you know, those business plans that people make up and bankers like to see, they're silly. I mean, I guess it's a good idea to have something to give you a guide when you start, but, but life just kind of changes, different opportunities come and go. You know, we said for a long time we would never get bigger than 2,500 <laughs> cases ever, and we are. And it's okay because we are still involved. You know, we're afraid of being a business and we can't make the wine. And some people like to say, oh, we don't make the wine, but I think people will always say things because we're still here and that's the most important thing. Yeah. Do you have a, a size in mind that you'd like to be or that you... Like this. This, this, this is... This how big is, is it right now? We're... What? What are we, 8,500 8, cases? 8,500, 9,000 cases. Um, and it's, it's big enough that it's, you know, in theory it can support us, which is awesome. But it's not so big that we're not doing everything. Um, you know, do I want to be on the road six months out of the year? No, but we don't have to be, right? Um, do I want to be, do I want to never go out on the road because I have a sales manager who does it all for me? I don't want to do that either. Um, it's it's good. It's it's doable at this size. Um, we're getting more efficient. We're getting smarter. We're we're getting less afraid, so we can step away and say, "Oh wow, we could do things like this, make it easier." So, yeah, this is this is a good size and a good place. In addition to Gamay, do you have any other like kind of dream varietals down the road, or something else you want to try? We want, the most important thing is we have to have access to the vineyards, you know. So if, if we have to drive five, five hours, hours, you know, <laughs> to go to a vineyard, that means we can't go to our other vineyards. So... Yeah, there was, there was one year a long time ago, we, we, made, we made Grenache once from a little vineyard down in Talent, down by Ashland. Love the wine. Super awesome, but it's like, that is a five-hour, one-way drive, and it's just like, I saw the vineyard twice. Um, and it just, it's just not worth, it's not, A, it's not worth the time of the car. Um, and there's lots of people down there that make great Grenache, and I can just buy it. It's great. It was just a disconnect. Yeah. Because there's something about watching the grapes grow, tasting them in the vineyard, being part of that, that, decision to pick is you have to taste the grapes and we're at the point where we're tasting them every day which is horrible because you get all these acid burns <laughs> in your mouth but can't do that with far away vineyards yeah i mean it's i, th I think it's uh, yeah and, and i think it's, it's it's really like we grow great pinot here that's where the focus of, that's where the focus of the winery is always going to be um and it's just going to be continuing to watch the vineyards get older, watch how they change as they get older, um, figure out better and better ways to react to weird weather like this year when we have 
like no rain since May. Um, luckily, it was super wet, so everything looks great. But it's you know it's it's just learning it's that settle into just incrementally get better and better and better and better and figure out new ways to do things and um, be mad scientists in the cellar. Yeah, that's yeah, great. So, what about the Oregon wine industry in general? What do you see as the future for the wine industry? Uh, every time I drive out in the valley, I just look at like 15 hillsides that I drive by and go, wow, that'd be a great vineyard, that'd be a great vineyard, that'd be a great vineyard. And then like three years later, I drive back through and go, shit, there's a vineyard there, and there's a vineyard there, and there's a vineyard over there. Um, I mean, it's clear that just more and more is going to get planted, um, which is cool because there's going to be new areas that become like the hot new areas because they've just never been planted, so nobody knows they're great yet. I think that is super cool. Um, it's going to get bigger. There's going to be more big companies here doing work. That's fine. Um, I think there's always going to be room for small wineries. I think the the one thing with actually so one thing that we have seen happen too since back in the mid '90s. Overall, the 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 base level for quality in Oregon wine has gotten so much better over the last 15 years. Um, there was always there were always people who made great wine, but there was always the oh yeah they make wine too crowd, and that's pretty much everybody's up their game. Um, everybody's equipment technology has gotten better. Their cellar habits have gotten better. They've learned how to make wine better. The winemakers are better. Um, the vineyard management's so come like for us. We have to get better, <laughs> which is good. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's 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 still a it's still a young wine region. There's still like tons of tons of room to grow, tons of stuff to do. Um, and it'll still be a young wine region when we're not doing this anymore. Do you think it's going? You say you, say you think it's going to grow. Do you have? Do you see a, a time at which it will stop growing? Do you see it, or at least the number of wineries will consolidate, or do you think it's just kind of growth for the foreseeable future? Well, there is consolidation now, right? Yeah. And some of that, there's also the, the brands that have their own licenses that are made by, you know, a handful. That, I wonder if maybe the, the legal classification of wineries might change, but there, there will be consolidation. I think when we first started, I remember we went to an Oregon Wine Board meeting. I think that's what it was. And people were talking about end games, you know? So we're the new guys on the block, and there are some wineries that had been in business for 10 or more years, and like, you know, we don't have kids, or our kids aren't interested. We, what do we do? We need to, you know, maybe as an industry, we, we should think about an end game, and nobody could, nobody, you know, I don't know. Well, some of these consolidations are helping those wineries find that out, find that end, mm -hmm. and then they can continue, you know, continue the brands at a reasonable pace. And you know, to get older, it work less. So I see that as a as something that will happen, and it's a positive. But I, but I don't. But I think as well, there's every year there's some new crazy person who's planting 20 acres of grapes someplace. Yeah. That isn't stopping either, um, which is good because there's new excitement, and you know. Some people are super naive and don't know what they're getting themselves into. Some people are, you know, some people come here because they can't afford land or there isn't any land left wherever they come from, um, and they come here, and that's cool too. Um, 
because we're away from everybody. Those, those crazy people that plant something ridiculous in some not some place where we all thought that they really shouldn't. Some of those will be successes, and we're yeah. like, oh. And some of them will be failures, and we're like, hey, we actually learned we are right. <laughs> <laughs> so we need that, and we'll have that, because we got lots of crazy people in this. This this business is full of alpha personalities and huge risk takers. So how could that be bad? Won't be boring, like I said. <laughs> what advice would you give someone who wanted to join the industry? I'd say. Go on a really good vacation now. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.